Charles Noe. All right, man. Welcome to Crow 777 Radio. This is episode 349. We're trying to get back on track here. Jason Lingren is with me, and we're very happy to have Athan Kamenti back with us. For those who have followed, you realize that he is a sidereal astrologer. The difference being tropical astrology has given us all our definitions pretty much for what's this mean or what's that mean. But there is a calculation and an offset done by many tropical astrologers, whereas sidereal astrologers simply walk outside and look straight up. And you're not going to catch me playing favorites. I think both of these things need to come together because I think they're both equally important. Anyhow, welcome, Jason. And a very beautiful good morning it is. We should further mention Jason has had to venture out into the world again to get an internet connection still um, so that we can get back on track here. We're hoping uh, that his homestead, if that's what it should be called, will be getting uh, a new type of internet connection in the next couple of days, but we'll just have to see. We're basically way behind. Anyhow, um, welcome, Athen. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be back. So much to talk about. Let's jump out of the gate by telling people what you do and where they can find you. Yeah, so true sidereal astrology. Uh, so we're using the visible sky, using the actual size of the constellations as you would see them. And uh, yeah, there's all these resources uh, that I offer on masteringthezodiac.com and also the YouTube channel by the same name, Mastering the Zodiac. And you do readings, right? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, readings. I also do courses for those interested in learning astrology. That's a big deal. I wish everybody would take an interest in learning. It's a wide open field in my eyes. But anyhow, Athen, we have so much to cover. So I'll just, I'll kick off. Last time we had you on, and if I'd have done my due diligence, I'd have the number, but anyone can use the search tool on the website to search Athen and you'll see all the episodes he's been on. But last time around, if I remember correctly, and I've had zero time to go back and review, you were saying something about the possibility or the likelihood of uprisings in early August. Do you recall? Yeah, early August um, and also July. I think I was referencing July a lot as well. And uh, to me, that's the two things we have going on. So a lot of the protests that we're seeing in the world, particularly Australia, Europe, and then of course, Afghanistan. Yeah. So that's really why I brought it up because that happened pretty quickly. Someone made a decision. Oh, here's the day. I, I forget. You know, I don't follow the news, but it, apparently there was an idea of May or something, and someone decided, nope, now. And the moment it happened, um, of course, they're saying two days later, who, who could have foreseen that they'd take over the whole country in five seconds? And I just thought back to what you'd said. I mean, it looks like they're leveraging off the sidereal sky clock, doesn't it? Yeah. So I, I think there's a natural side to it. So I think with the protests as far on the more natural side, like it's just time for this kind of thing. Like I was alluding to about the year, like more freedom and change and, you know, that being linked with that. But of course the elite are also using the energy too. And I do firmly believe that the Afghanistan thing was pre-planned and I do think they use the energy for, you know, destabilization over there. It sure looks like it. And anyone could go back, just do a search to figure out which episode it is. Last one we did with Athen. And you'll see where we're talking about this very thing well before the fact. Um, <clears throat> there's it, it, All this is going to octopus out too, because they're already spouting stuff about homegrown terror and this, that, and the other thing. Um, what are you seeing as we come into September here? Everybody knows that September never seems to squeak on by without issue. And here we are at that point of the sky clock again this year, heading for fall pretty quickly. Yeah. So I, th I think generally, you know, as a yearly energy, it's the same kind of stuff we're seeing. Um, October does look very interesting, though, with the Mars kind of energy. So, you know, a lot of this was with Mars uh, squaring planets and, you know, Mars is the more assertive and war uh, planet, stuff like this. Um, and that's where we start to get into some interesting energy. So October, Mars will be conjunct the sun. So these are, you know, these are things that are quite cyclical. I do want to put it out there. Like, for example, this one happens every three years. So it's not just this in isolation. It's mainly the fact that Saturn's squaring Uranus this year. And so as we were saying, even last year, like this year has that kind of energy about it. So these more fast moving planets are going to, you know, narrow it down by the months. So October, Mars will be over the sun. October 22nd, Mars squares Pluto, right? So you can get an idea of that. Pluto's, you know, deep, intense, transformative. Well, let's, let's give people an idea so they know what we're talking about. If you remember all the times we've talked about angles, the sky clock is all about angles to the point. 
where I could almost make the statement and logically accept it in my mind that time is basically angles. It's what it is. If you wanted to look at it in the way that I'm, I'm presenting it here, which is not a be all end all, but the angles of joy are represented in a perfect triangle. The angles of not joy are represented in a square that 90 degrees. So when Athens talking about planets squaring planets in the sky clock calculation, you're getting those 90 degree angles. So just explain that out a little bit. And by the way, I want to talk a little more about Mars conjunct with the sun. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. Like, so we do the same thing with astrology. So the trines are more easier, more harmonious. Uh, the squares, however, being that 90 degree relationship is more of the clash, right? It's where planets are in two very different parts of the sky. And, uh, you know, it's that kind of expression of like squaring up to something or someone or something, you know, so it's that kind of energy. Um, so those are the most challenging with astrology. Now, of course, you know, there's personal growth. So this is great times for personal development with Mars and Pluto, for example, facing fears, empowering ourselves, making changes constructively. Uh, but the squares do tend to bring out the imbalances or the extremes of the planets. So all the planets have their balanced expression, like Mars's healthy assertiveness and stuff, but in the extremes, you know, can be the clashing or the war or, you know, very fighting, you know, that kind of fire energy that's um, kind of, you know, to an extreme, let's say. So that's why we look at those, you know, so looking at the year for this kind of stuff, that's what we pay attention to Mars, Pluto, and of course, Uranus and Saturn, because they're the ones involved with the yearly energy with that square as well. So I've been reading back across some old Rosicrucian texts recently that I'd read a long time ago, and I'd forgotten. They flat out, well, they name the benefic or so-called good planets, and they name the malefic or so-called bad planets, and they flat out call uh, Uranus a malefic planet, negative. And so it's interesting when you have a square with Saturn, because that is also listed in their book as a malefic planet, that's energy that's clashing, right? When they become squared. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's the outer planet. So all the planets are generally challenging like this and could be considered malefic in that sense. Uh, the two benefics that like universally everyone would agree on is Venus and Jupiter. And then the uh, malefics would be Mars and Saturn. And then once you get after Saturn, you know, these planets are very challenging. So you could classify them as all malefics in a sense, just because they're very deep in the psyche and very challenging to work with. Well, not only that, even back in those writings, some of them, I don't know, I think it's near the end of the 1800s, early 1900s, they're still saying at that point, we've got to wait to see how these new planets, so-called planets, Neptune and Uranus, how they shake out. We think we have an idea of what they're supposed to be. They even go so far as to say there will be others discovered uh, when the consciousness raises to a level to do that. But to get back to the point, that particular book, surveying the stars, or I forget what it's called. I'd have to look. I just gave it to Rose recently. She knows. They list three benefic or positive planets, and they put the sun in with uh, Venus and Jupiter every time. Yeah. So that depends on the East and West philosophy. And so, yeah. So in the East, for example, the sun would be considered a malefic uh, in that sense, usually, and then vice versa for the West. So the, the universally agreed upon ones, Venus, Jupiter, benefic. Uh, but yeah, the sun and moon can differ depending on whether you're in the east or the west with the astrology. I, I don't even have a problem with that because I accept all day long that geography plays a key, key role. My life in San Diego almost doesn't resemble my life since I was young, uh, a child and into teens. Every time I came back here, certain aspects of my life would rise back to the surface. And every time I went back to San Diego, those would fall off and other ones. And I was reading about the geology of astrological ideas and I accept them all day long. Uh, In the same way, that's why I have, you see, I'm, I'm a Sagittarius, so I'm dead center in the tropical idea of Sagittarius. But a lot of people would say, well, no, you're not. You're Ophiuchen. Um, Some people might even try to say uh, I'm Scorpio. But the way that I look at it is I look at the old definitions for injuries. Now, that's a thing, right? So if you were prone to injuries they had always associated, wouldn't that represent something close to the truth? Anyhow, I know I'm rambling here, but what's your view? You would call me an Ophiuchen, wouldn't you? Yeah, since that's where your son was. Yeah, so I'm just looking at you know where your planets were when you were born. Right. 
we should keep in mind the difference between the sun being beneficial or uh, malignant uh, in the Eastern view or the, the Asian view. Think about their calendars. Almost all their calendars were driving from the moon. So really, there probably is something to the geography. But what, what about when we get to that all dreaded mid-September? Do you see anything going on of import there? Uh, Mid-September, let's have a look. What was standing out to me in the yearly sense was the October, November, and December time. Uh, let me just have a quick peek here. Hit the 11th for grins. The 11th of September? Yeah. Try to okay. remember a kind of September. Right. Yeah. So nothing aspecting the yearly energies. Astrologically, it looks pretty straightforward. We'd have Venus squaring Pluto on September 5th, but that's not really part of the yearly stuff. That's very cyclical. Some sort of conjunction, opposition, or square with Venus, you know, every three months, roughly. And the sun will be opposite Neptune. So to me, nothing completely standing out astrologically. But of course, there's always challenges and easy energy to work with at certain times. So, Athen, I want to talk a little bit about, and we want, I want to come back around and see that if, you know, what the big points that really stand out to you, maybe as far away as next summer solstice or even the spring equinox, um, if there are things on the horizon. I think everybody's feeling that change is in the air big right now. Um, I don't know how you live in the world and don't sense that change is big in the air right now, but I want to pull it back around to outline a little bit. The idea, like when you grab these old books on astrology, it's always referencing that each sign is 30 degrees. As everybody knows, who's ever looked at the constellations, they are not the same size. <clears throat> the reason I'm bringing this up again is because I want you to lay down your point of view on it. But you know those old mechanical astro clocks, like in Prague, I think there's one, I forget where they are. <clears throat> I just recently saw one that I hadn't seen before. And it's a clock and it's got all the signs, but the signs are actually the size they are. And other, some are small, some are big. And the clock's rolling through and the known world is in the center. And there's this huge area outside. So it looks like the known world is the area being lit by the sun and that there's all this other stuff. But it occurred to me that that clock is telling the truth. Um, it's not artificially creating anything. So you can, can you just give your point of view on how to deal with, you know, these books are telling you, well, there's 30 degrees here. And when you get to the first decan, you've got two decans left when in fact, that's not what you observe when you go out and look up. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So in the sky, like all the constellations are different sizes. So some are very small. Uh, we were talking before this, uh, when we went live. So Libra, for example, is 19 degrees. That's like super small, right? And then some constellations are huge, like Virgo and Pisces, which are over 30, Virgo even more into the 40s. So yeah, that's how it is in the sky. And um, you know, I think that's the most important thing to follow. And you know, with like those uh, clocks you're mentioning, like they're very much sun-centered, obviously, right? So it's tropical. Uh, right. And that's why that sun's like right in the center. It's like everything revolving around that. So I still think it's accurate, like for the seasons in particular. And I think that's mainly what they're used for or can be used for is the seasonal astrology and the seasonal timing of things, which is all sun-centered. Yeah. You know, I wasn't aware, but I started to look into them um, because I became intrigued and they've all been edited or at least the ones that I'm aware of have been changed. Uh, maps have been pulled out of them. And there have been modifications made to those clocks. And I thought to myself, self, if these geniuses back in the day made this beautiful antique thing, why would anyone come along to change it? But here's where I think the key is for me right now, Athen, if you care to hear. It occurred to me that if you were going to use a clock like that, where you're going to accurately show the sign small, the signs big, and you're going to use it. The equinoxes, the signs at the equinoxes, which would be Aries in the spring and the scales of justice or Libra in the fall, they would need to be damn near identical. So let's do what you and I just did. How many degrees is in the sign of Aries or where we find the spring equinox? Okay. So, so right now the spring equinox, the sun's in Pisces, right? I'm sorry. Switch over to tropical for a moment. Then we'll come back oh. to sidereal. I, I sorry, I see, I see exactly what I, I I led you into tropical and didn't say anything. <laughs> so just for the sake of all those charts where you see it laid out tropically, it would have to be pretty key for the two vernal and fall equinoxes to be close. So that would mean Aries and Libra would have to be very close in size. Oh, exactly. Right. So so everything's thirty degrees exactly. 
So if you measure Aries, how many degrees actually is it in reality? So in reality, it's 21 around there. Okay. So, so obviously 21. there's variance. So what's Libra yeah. going to shake out to the way it's currently portrayed? Right. And so in tropical, everything's 30, but uh, in truth, Libra is like nine, close to 19. So what, there's two degrees difference there. So they are very close. And actually I led us astray. Um, so go back around and explain the truth of the matter. When you walk out into the world and you look up at the sky, um, what signs will the two vernal and fall equinoxes be? Right. So right now, right. So first of all, with the equinoxes, it's Pisces, right? So for the spring equinox, and then it's Virgo for the fall. Okay. And then in the summer right now, it's the sun is just entering Gemini at this time. And then the winter, it's at the beginning of Sagittarius for the winter solstice. So you can see they're pretty much this, you know, they're pretty much like in this case, like with Gemini, very different. And so from an astrological point of view, how do you choose to mark what tells you what the equinox actually is? Like most people that I knew for years and years and years said, well, it's simple. You go to the equinox in spring and you look what constellation is where the sun is. And that tells you what age you're in. Is that the way that you think is accurate? Well, I still think that, you know, by definition, the equinoxes and solstices are sun-centered, right? So it's seasonal. It's a seasonal measurement. So you're basically looking at the lowest part of the sun in the sky, the highest part of the sun in the sky, right? And where the sun is at that time is what we're looking at with the astrology, like what constellation is in front of. So, so the dates are the same, in other words, like you know, 21st, like that's going to be the same for all forms of astrology, tropical and sidereal. The only difference is what sign they're in because of what is popularized as procession, right? The ever-changing sky relative to the seasons. Here's what I think I notice. And I think I notice, I can't prove it, but I, I think I'm correct right now. When I see things encoded in media and making references, it feels to me like they're referencing tropical. And I think that further obscures someone from catching on to what they're doing, because if you walked out into the world and looked up, you'd be at least one sign off most of the time. And some mm -hmm. occasions you, you might be in the same sign, but nowhere near uh, the actual point that you would be if you just had tropical and tropical match the sky. And that brings me back around to Sagittarius this year, tropical Sagittarius, which would be the sun moving to the end of its year and preparing to go to the low point and die called the winter solstice and come back up in Capricorn. Um, I have seen it endlessly encoded that there's all this big to do in this time. So if you convert in your mind, what I just said, if, if truly the low point of the sun was at the end of Sag going into Capricorn and convert that to sidereal, the way that you look at it, what do you see going on right there? Pulling into there the month before leading up to it. Yeah. So in sidereal, the winter solstice is right at the beginning of Sag. So about two, maybe three degrees, depending on how you measure it. And that's because of the, you know, again, what's known as procession, what they call procession, right? What's very interesting, however, is that as procession continues, and we take this measurement of the fact that sidereal is changing relative to tropical about 70, about one degree every 72 years and two degrees away from a fucus. So we are starting to enter into a more a fucus energy collectively. The sun is basically getting closer to the galactic center as we move through the ages and it's getting extremely close and by definition conjunct the galactic center at the moment, which. Well, what does that mean? What, what do you, when you say galactic center, what is it that you were saying? Right. So that's, that's at the very end of a fucus It's the center. So in mainstream, they would consider it the center of the galaxy, but it's basically the Milky Way or what they call the Milky Way when you see it in the sky. The point isn't so much what we theorize it is. When you look at it in the sky, it's a serious amount of concentrated energy. There's all these luminaries making up that Milky Way. So it's an extremely powerful part of the sky. And anytime a planet passes through there or is associated with it in some way, it's extremely transformative, holds the energy of Pluto. So sort of death and the rebirth. It's also associated with healing and transformation and alchemy um, in astrology. So we're moving more into that kind of age, let's say, as the 
sun gets closer to that during the winter solstice. Okay. So for people, the mainstream view, if you, and okay, let's just cover this real quick because people understand that a lot of people understand that the space agencies have lied and that's a, that's a catch 22 because then they realize that so many of the images of space things we've seen have been fake, which is in fact true, but it's not all, it's not all fake to the point where it doesn't exist. So I'll use a galaxy. When you get a minute today, go over to a search engine and search for astrophotography galaxy. And you will see there's these little spirally things. They used to call them nebula before they got, you know, modern scopes good enough to resolve them. And they could see it appeared to be a spinning cloud of stars. So people should understand these things are real. I've shot them. I see them. When I look at them with my eye, it looks like a little smudge of cotton. When I take a camera and open up the shutter for an extended period of time to collect light particles on the film. That's when you resolve out a good one to look at is the Andromeda galaxy. It's one of the biggest. I think it's one of the closest if I remember correctly. So you should understand those things exist. Um, It's an interesting story to try to figure out why were they nebula at one point, then they became galaxies. It's all around the, the big telescopes that get built that this happens. My point is, is what Appen just said about the galactic center would be the mainstream view that you're told when you look into the Milky Way, you're looking at one of these galaxies that you're supposedly inside of edge on. And further, depending where you read at the center and some people will tell you there's a black hole. There, there's all kinds of descriptions about what's at the center of a galaxy. And it's all theoretical. And it's mostly poppycock. But as Atham pointed out, I mean, there's a lot of energy there. Do you think I dropped anything in trying to frame that, Athen? No, that's exactly right. It, it's not so, like what's important is what's in the visible sky, at least for me, right? You look up at the sky, you see that strong concentration of luminaries. It's highly energetic right? Astrologically and extremely transformative. So that's the most important thing, you know, and the key takeaway, I think, from this. Athen, is the galaxy or any other further away bodies ever taken into account with any readings at all? Uh, no, not typically. So we're typically using the luminaries that they would call stars, you know. So obviously, with what they call galaxies, they're not as prominent in the sky, so usually not visible by the naked eye. So Again, using the visible sky, we wouldn't take too much of that into account. The so-called Milky Way that people have seen, by the way, under the right conditions, you can actually see the dome of the sky when the Milky Way, when there's no moon, it's very dark, you're out away from city lights. Uh, I did it here in Rhode Island um, and it blew my mind. But my point is, is the Milky Way, the first time I ever saw it with high powered tools, I fell in love. Um, because it looks like a milky smudge and you get high magnification on it and you realize, my God, it's like particles of stars. Each one of those little things is a little star. Like it's almost like sand on the beach. There are so many of them. And that brings me around to another thing. Do globular clusters ever play into astrology? Because the first time I saw the globular cluster with an eight inch telescope in Hercules, I think it's M13. I can't remember. Um, I fell in love again. It was like, my God. And so I'm reading the mainstream narrative. Oh, these are the most ancient of things. And they orbit this, that, and the other thing. And gravity, gravity, gravity. You know, they, they do what they always do. But they were claiming they were the most ancient of things. And as I thought about astrology, I thought, why aren't things like globular clusters, which are an intense grouping of stars, like thousands and thousands jammed into a very small space in the sky? Did do they ever play into astrology, the idea of a globular cluster? Yeah. And, you know, because astrology goes back so many thousands of years, it's like we still consider them stars, right? We still call them stars, even though they might be a grouping of them. So like the Pleiades would be an example, of, you know, one that is used in mainstream astrology and also in this system as well, right? So we do use Pleiades a lot and, and that's because it's visible. So if you can see it, you could classified as a star, then we do use it with astrology. But if it's invisible to the naked eye, you know, again, this is, um, you know, the astrology is based on thousands of years of not using telescopes. So I think we could use them. I think we probably should. But uh, most of the astrology we use is based on naked eye observations. Well, to be fair, uh, the cluster is in a constellation where I, I assume it will always be. So if you're saying a constellation has this influence in a way you've covered it, but I'll tell you, the Pleiades, 
bar none, my favorite thing to shoot with a camera. Um, by the way, the Pleiades made it into the Bible. Uh, is it the book of Job? I hope I'm getting this right. Uh, and it talks about the sweet influences of the Pleiades. Many of the old writings uh, considered that. By the way, in case you didn't know, the car maker Subaru is actually playing off riffing on the Seven Sisters, even though their logo, I think, only has six stars. Not sure if that's right. They're talking about the Pleiades. And uh, Subarus are very, very, very popular cars compared to almost any manufacturer. The point I was going to make is when you take, when you look at the Pleiades and you can't do it in a scope, unless it's large format because it's too wide. When you zoom in, you're only seeing a, a small piece of it. So using binoculars is the way to go at the Pleiades. And it is near the eye of the bull at Aldebaran, a supposed malefic star that is orangey red. But to get back to the Pleiades, it is gorgeous beyond description to get a nice pair of binoculars and look at it. But when you take a camera and you open up the shutter for an extended period of time with perfect tracking, this blue smudges, what they call a reflection nebula, um, shows up and it's there. This is not NASA magic. It is there. I've shot it. I know plenty of people who've shot it. Go look up astrophotography for the Pleiades. You will see. But what's trippy about it, it almost looks like there's scratches on a dome or something if you really carefully look at the reflection nebula. But in your point of view, would the Pleiades be beneficial? Yeah, benefic, yeah. And, and that's, that goes to the point too. It's like, you can visibly see that. So like we were talking about Venus and Jupiter, right? So you look at those luminaries and you can just tell they're a bright color, very magnetic, very easy to see. And then you look at Mars, for example, you know, or if you can't see it, Saturn has a totally different hue, totally different feeling, yes. you know, frequency. So yeah, you can tell a lot by a star or cluster of stars, just by the color, the color, the hue. Yeah. The energy. Let's talk about that a minute. So there are plenty like the astrology dictionary um, that I've recommended. And again, Rose can hand out these books to anyone because I just recently gave her the whole thing. They were coming around to Aldebaran is malefic. And part of the reason we know is because it's that red orange, the heart of the scorpion, which is help me out. I'm dropping the name. Antares. And there you go. Antares uh, is, is again, that kind of orangey, yellowy red. Um, the Pleiades, that's blue. Other things like Regulus, the heart of the lion, very intense white blue when you film it with a camera. So there is an absolute correlation with the way old astrologers viewed what the color means. Almost as far as I know, Athen, the red and orangey looking things were all malefic and the bluey ones beneficial. Right, exactly. Yeah. And that goes to the color spectrum, you know. Right. It, it gives you a big bump up. And not only that, think about this. Um, on the color episodes Jason and I have done, uh, the red would be firmly masculine. Now, masculine on the 3D plane is positive in polarity, and blue would be female. In other words, they've even jacked us around there. When a baby is born, uh, a, a baby boy should be red. And a baby girl should be blue by the meaning and the cymatics of color, what's true in nature. What they've actually done is dimmed down the red to become pink and made that female and taken the feminine blue and associated it with a young boy. There's another manipulation. Wow. But to get back around, when you look at the actual value of things from the cymatic values, it seems like there's a one-to-one -one correlation. And here's the kicker. On the material plane, men are positive in polarity, women are negative. On the spiritual plane, as above, so below, that flips and men become negative above and women become positive above. And it all just kind of matches. And when you start to know all these things, it gives you a logical recourse to consider what someone is telling you. Like, okay, there's the eye of the bull. It's Aldebaran. It's a beautiful star, but am I sensitive enough to look at it and say, that feels a little malefic to me, or can I reason it out? Um, what are some of the other ones that are really big and bright that we could mention, Athen? I mean, I, I mentioned Rigel. We did the heart of the scorpion. We did the eye of the bull. What are some of the other ones you can think of? Uh, we have Regulus, right? So Leo, pretty bright, pretty prominent. Yep. Yeah. And then this really goes to like, once you start looking at the bright stars, like in ancient script scriptures, like you'll notice a lot of the symbolism of Taurus, Leo, Scorpio, and Aquarius. So like, you'll see them like uh, always sort of prominent in like the cross, 
So it's like this, this magic cross or whatever they call it. And those are like the brightest parts of the sky. So, so they would be very significant, you know, in terms of our growth and development. And that's what I think it's showing is like the brighter the star, the more important it is when a planet passes through it or another luminary passes through it, uh, you know, very important events. And I think those are the big four right there, the Leo, Taurus, Scorpio, and Aquarius in terms of really eye-catching, you know, um, constellations uh, and very important for certain time periods. Like they, they, they call like, you know, mainstream astrology, they say like the Leo gate. I don't know if you've heard that, but like the lion's gate, you know, so, so it's like, they consider that a very important time. Obviously, if there's something in Scorpio, it's an important time. The Pleiades, Taurus, right? Yep. So, yeah. These so are, I think those, card- those cardinal are the four. stars, right? They often call those the cardinal or royal stars. The royal stars, but but it's fixed. Those are the um, right. the fixed constellations, yeah. So people can follow. If you go back through Christian tradition uh, and you go back far enough, or you even just go to the Gospels, each of the Gospels maps exactly what Athens just laid down. There's another correlation to the sky clock your preacher never told you about because no one ever told your preacher. Um, when you see the cross or the Gospel saints represented, it's always the lion, the bull, um, the man, which is Aquarius but it's not the scorpion, it's the eagle, and we should describe that one more time. The reason it's not the scorpion is because the idea in Scorpio is you can overcome all the woes of being a 3D human and become that lofty eagle, or maybe a little bit like the phoenix rising from the ashes, the scorpion having a lot to do with sex and even being demonstrated on the body chart by the regenerative genital organs. My point being is it's right there in the Gospels, and each Gospel will have one of these symbols. And by the way, um, they, they carried that out further into the saints, like um, St. Patrick is a good example. I, re- I recently did a post of that showing his sign as a cross because he's the equinox. And so these are key, key points in the sky. And I can only partially describe why they're so important, Athen. I mean, they're probably as critically important as anything if you want to go back through biblical or older writings. Yeah. And I think it's exactly because of the stars. So when you're asking about the brightest stars, that's where they're concentrated is in those four constellations. Almost like a compass too, but it's almost the cross idea as it relates to the solstices and equinox. All of that's wrapped up in it, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, so obviously the the so-called procession would mean that that's where we're heading next, you know, so they say we're entering the age of Aquarius. Um, I do believe we're still like 700 plus years away from that. But uh, as we do move closer to that, that's going to be, you know, aligning with the uh, with the seasons, with the solstices and equinoxes. I'll tell you what, I'd give away my best pair of flip flops to know what age we're actually in and when it changes. You know what? I'd give them all away, <laughs> to be honest. Um, and I, I know you I know you reasonably logically have even explained to me why you're there. You know me, though, if I find a problem, man, if there's a thread hanging, I'm going to pull on that thread until I get to the other end. I don't know what to accept at this point. And part of what threw me off, Athen, if I want to be honest, is the biblical encoding to the sky clock often uses the rising ascendant just before dawn or right at dawn. Mm -hmm. And I I have verifiable uh, encoded information that uses that method. And so didn't take much to sway me to consider that maybe that's possible to identify both age and equinox. Right. So depending on how you define the age. So if it's where the sun is exactly, then that's the Pisces. But if it's the rising, then it's Aquarius right now, the age of Aquarius, which means then that this, you know, this cross, right, this, uh, these four constellations are part of the uh, equinoxes and solstices currently, if you consider the age to be the rising constellation during the equinox. All right, let's talk a minute while we've got a little time left in hour one about the procession of the mind warping. I mean, the equinoxes. (laughs) Now, I don't know enough to answer the question I'm about to ask you, but in, in tropical astrology, the procession of the equinoxes isn't per se changing anything but the position. So you would just calculate out another degree away from the sky you see. Is that how it works? Um, So it's basically like, so we have our, our seasons. And so the sun obviously having its cycle. And we're noticing that in the sky, the sun does not originate to the same place in the sky every year. So ever so slightly 
the luminaries behind the sun or the constellations are changing or moving, wherever your view on that is, yep. relative to where the sun is at that point every year. It doesn't matter if you measure during the equinox or any other day of the year. The sun relative to the luminaries behind it are moving or changing. And so that's what they call precession. And that's what you know changes the ages. And why, as time goes on, sidereal, for example, will become more and more different from tropical. So there will be a point when it's it's already sometimes two signs away. There'll be a point when it's three signs, four signs, five signs, and so on, as this change subtly occurs over hundreds of years. It's again one degree every 72 years is the difference. Right. So every 72 years, the, the sun will be one degree changed to the constellations. Um, so it's very, very slight. But yeah, it's been changing since you know the past 2000 plus years when they first started this tropical system and all this. Right. So I accept all day long. I'm a buyer at 72 years for one degree. One of the reasons I'm a buyer and will accept that information is because it adds to nine. And the ancient Hindus taught me a hell of a lot or basically as much as I know um, about long cycles of time. And almost always we come to the completion number of nine when there's going to be a big changeover of some kind. So I appreciate that the procession of the equinoxes is going to be 72 years, that sums to nine, to get your one degree. What I don't appreciate and where I'm not a buyer is the mainstream is going to explain the procession of the equinox as follows. We are on a spinning ball. Something that happened that we don't know, something clearly hit us, made us spin like a top. So we're not spinning normally. We're like wobbly spinning like a top at the end of its rotation. And that accounts for the procession of the equinox. There's so many holes and problems with that story, not to mention that the only way to ever prove any of it was true, um, you'd have to have records going way back or you could only ever do you know, a few hundred years of observation. What I accept to be correct is that 72 years, we slip a degree. And as Athen was pointing out, that means tropical gets another degree further away from the sky you actually look at. But what's more is what I actually accept is going on. And I'm telling you, don't accept what I'm saying here. Go out and poke a hole in it. So much of this needs to be worked out and proven, reproven, that that is simply how the sky clock works. And it works that way because if it didn't, we really wouldn't have ages, would we, Athen? We would have cycles of the same thing over and over and over and over. Uh, although if anyone knows about the Naro cycle, do you know about the Naro cycle, Athen? No. Mm-mm. So that's a hell of a thing, man. And the, one of the only books that touches on it is volume one of the light of Egypt that tells us that one of the most important and perfect, mathematically perfect is the Naros cycle, N-A-R-O-S, which goes If today was January 1st and I looked up and all the things were in the sky clock where they were, and I went exactly 600 years forward to that moment in time, all those things would be exactly relative to where they were 600 years prior, called the Naros cycle and directly attached, so we're told, to the spiritual lifting or evolution of living men and women. Critical one, hard to get information on, and apparently, according to the masters, dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. Anything else you want to get into our one that I might have overlooked that you think is critical about the summer we're leaving, the fall we're heading into, and the oh-so-dreaded winter that stands in front of us? Yeah, so coming up, you know, October, like I was saying, I think things are going to start to move a little more forward. Like, obviously, in our personal lives, things are going to start to move forward, but also collectively, too. Uh, I think the elite will use that to push forward some things and whatnot, particularly by the end of October. Again, October 22nd will be the Mars square Pluto and all of this, but then these kinds of events continue because again, Mars will be next to the sun. So then the sun's going to pass over these same locations through November and into December. So these last three months of the year has the strongest energy of what we've been experiencing this year. And this isn't to say that it's like, you know, something's going to be cataclysmic or, you know, this huge event or something like this, but um, the same kind of energy uh, being activated during those months. Yeah. So when Mars and the sun are conjunct, so a lot of the old books that I read are going to refer to the sun as a bit of a lens. And you know what? It's like a prism is a perfect example. If you take a prism, the sun gives this beautiful white light. The prism breaks it out into how many colors? Seven. How many luminaries are there? Seven. So it all fits logically. Um, What I've read 
is those older cultures viewed the sun as a lens. So all the so-called luminaries or the so-called planets would almost be lensed into our world through the sun in some overarching way. So what I was going to ask is, do you accept that? But when you have a conjunction between Mars and the sun, do you view that as Mars overruling what the sun normally would do or contributing to what the sun would normally do? Or is it going to be the sun's good, but Mars is bad and Mars has taken over for a little bit here? So the visible thing, right? So if you look up at the sky, you won't see Mars. So it's actually going to be the sun playing the dominant role. So the sun's going to take the dominant energy. The thing with astrology is this usually tends to imbalance the planet. So it's what's called in Vedic astrology, combust. And it's where the energy of the planet that's being combust, in this case, Mars, is going to be imbalanced over or under extremes with it, right? And so again, that's that fiery nature. And this tends to be more malefic, more challenging because of Mars being combust. But it's the sun taking the dominant energy. Because if you were to look up at the sky, you wouldn't see Mars. And so you could consider that Mars is manifesting unconsciously or automatically without thinking about it rashly, impulsively, right? This kind of a thing. That's why it stands out to me for the year. So you wouldn't, when you say combust, I was just reading about this from the Rosicrucian point of view, and they said combustion is a big deal and that it was often overlooked. Um, I know a little bit about it, but you're not saying that Mars is being diluted. You're basically saying that the power of the sun is. I don't know how to say it. It's like a river and some, you know, the sun's a river and some Mars that's all discombobulated, got thrown into the river and that's how it's going to get delivered. I don't know if I did a very good job saying that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so the sun is like shining those rays, right? This light. And so it's, you could think of it as if it was a river, like that stream of light, it's a Mars stream, right? It's a Mars river because all that... Yeah, because all that energy from Mars is being shined into the Earth from the sun, right? Okay. Jason, anything you want to get in before we wrap up hour one and get over into hour two where we can do whatever the hell we want? Since we are going into the fall and then, of course, the winter, this is considered flu season, of course. So is there anything we could say that things might look like? Does anything feel plaguey? Is that what you're asking? (laughs) Right. So, so this is an interesting thing because December, you know, so late November, December, we have the eclipses. Okay. And if you recall, like what we were looking at for like this whole COVID thing, whatever was the South node and the South node in this case being next to the sun during this time, which is what we call an eclipse. And the South node is going to be leaving Scorpio. Right, right around that same time as the eclipse. The eclipse will technically be in Scorpio. So I do think that there is some final hurrah, some final development, some things that probably the elite are going to try to wrap up and rush and, and do while it's the energy for it. Because once the South Node leaves, this whole theme of using this energy behind medicine or what they call medicine, you know, and this kind of stuff we've been experiencing the past couple of years, this ends astrologically. So it's no longer the time for that. So what I'm thinking is if I were the elites, I would try to rush in as much as possible between late October until the end of December. And with all those other planets I was talking about, that's what it looks like. It looks like a rushed energy. That's also Mars, the squares as well. Um, and I think they're going to use that. So it's, I think, short term in that sense, but it could be quite drastic uh, in terms of implementations. Uh, policies or whatever, whatever they're you know planning on ushering forward with this period of time again. One more refresher: When are we talking? So mid to late October, Saturn and Jupiter go direct, so they finish their retrogrades. Okay, and that's always good time to implement things. Yeah. Did you happen to notice anything that looked like mistakes by the elites' movements this year? Not this year, no. But I have noticed things before. Like I remember when um, when it was like Hillary Clinton and Trump and, and Venus was next to the South Node and in a fucus or getting close to it. Or no, I'm sorry. Venus was actually in a fucus next to the galactic center. So that's usually like drawing of energy. So drawing out from that Venus energy. And it was like, I think they definitely wanted to usher in like, uh, you know, Hillary at that time. 
And uh, it did work because that part of the sky is just not beneficial for that kind of feminine energy. Like she would have been the first, you know, female president and all this kind of thing. So, yeah, I think they do try, but they don't always succeed in their uh, in their agendas. How about the last election? What did things look like astrologically before that went down? Oh, yeah, that was crazy. What was going on astrologically? I'll have to get back to you on that one. But I do remember a couple of things. Yeah, but that was definitely a more supportive time for the elite in, in their plans and what they wanted to do at that time. Yeah, because they do have to work within the election cycle. That's the thing. So that's why it's, it's more difficult for them when there is elections like this, because they can only you know, they have their strength when they're operating within the cycles, but those cycles don't line up with already predetermined time periods like elections. They don't always have that strength to do what they want. And by asking, you know, like some of these books you get from the old Rosicrucians or other orders that claim to know some things about the sky clock, they almost always close out or have a section of the book that says, look, we're going to do a reading on these famous people you've heard of to prove our points happens all the time. Have you ever heard this one? Um, Because when I saw it, I was like, wow, because not because it was the star of the day, but I mean, yeah, that's part of it. But what I know of the angles of joy, which is a perfect triangle and what I know of the angles of sorrow, which is the 90 degree rectangular square. So when you're talking about squaring planets, I get that that's a malefic idea. When you're talking about trying, you know, the triangle idea, I get that's a positive idea, but this I, I don't even remember. Who, oh, there was no living person, but they showed that they claimed that the ancients waited for the star of David to come in a chart, which is basically two triangles, one pointed up, overset by one pointed down. And they said anyone born when this you know configuration is in a sky chart is going to be a very, very special person. Have you ever seen anything like that before? Yeah. It creates the star of David basically perfectly. Right. So north, north tip, south tip, two triangles. I, I don't remember where the planets were, but. Yeah, so it's two trines. Yeah, two trines, basically. Um, so, yeah, I do see them, but like a perfect one? No, because you have all these other luminaries forming aspects, too. Uh, the closest one I know of is actually Tom Cruise. So for those who want to check that out, you know, you can look at his chart. What, what do you mean? What's special about Tom? Well, he has that. He has that in his astrology chart, the Star of David. Oh, he does. Yeah. It's funny because I know people hear the Star of David and they they get negative, but you've got to realize that this is the 2D rendering of a Merkaba. This is not, it's like people saying, oh, the gay community stole our rainbow. No, they didn't. They, they've got their own flag. They're doing their own thing. It has nothing to do with you. And that's the same idea of the Star of David. So what? It's on someone's flag. It doesn't diminish that in the reality of the world, that is a big deal still. If no, if no other reason, because they're macabre, but I had no idea that was true of Tom Cruise. Like it's close. Like no one's per- like, no one has the perfect one. Right. So maybe if someone did have the perfect one, maybe they would be like, you know, I don't know, worshiped or something because it- they would be Paul Atreides. Yeah, exactly. They said it would be like a Jesus type person, which Paul Atreides was the Jesus in that storyline. Um, but if everything that I've been reading recently is accurate and I accept the Naros cycle, Um, because it's documented and it's also hidden because it's apparently so important. That would mean that what I read about the star of David, the perfect star of David could only show up once in 600 years, I think is what that would mean, which is interesting because they claim that the big teachers, the Buddhas, the Muhammad's, the Jesus's, the, the Brahma, you know, they claim all these historic teachers through time, uh, show up every five to 600 years apart, which I find is interesting because I never knew about the Naros cycle. But Athen, anything you want to get in? And if not, go ahead and tell people where they can find you again. Yeah, I'm good. Um, so masteringthezodiac.com. Uh, that's the website. Uh, readings, courses, just material. You can pull up your chart too, see what your chart looks like. And the YouTube channel, uh, weekly videos and new and full moon videos and educational videos as well. Mastering the Zodiac. All right. Man, you could spend a lifetime, you could spend five lifetimes learning about the sky clock and there would never be a day when there's not more to learn. I'm never going to be a master because I'm too busy trying to authenticate things all the time. It's like, I'm not going to waste my time learning a system that my heart is not in. And if I find some problem or I have some question, I need that answered first. But it is amazing, astounding. And when you go out into the real world with binoculars or your eyes or tools, 
the beauty is beyond compare. To see your first snapshot of the Pleiades, I don't know how anyone sees that and isn't instantly in love for life. But anyhow, that does bring hour one of episode 349 to a close. Close. Join us at crow777radio.com, C-R-R-O-W, 777radio.com for hour two. And we'll get into the free speech zone. Not that when we're worth Athens, we don't have to worry too much about that. But man, it's getting hot in here, is it not, Jason? Um, rhetorical. Anyhow, join us at crow777radio.com. And I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. There it is, man. Cheers. Is the enemy of knowing.